Hi there. Welcome to Mushroom Hour. Today on the Mushroom Hour podcast, we're here with Jacob DeVecchio, founder of Oklahoma Fungi and the Oklahoma Mushroom Festival. I'm excited to talk with someone who has really been all over the place this past year or two. Jacob, thank you for joining us on the Mushroom Hour. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be here. It's been an amazing journey. I'm listening and back in 2020 to networking and connecting with different people who've been on the show and finally getting to be here myself. Well, I love hearing that. I love that somehow Mushroom Hour had a, had a part to play in all that networking. And I remember uh, we were saying before the show, I think it was Mike Tyson who first kind of pointed me your direction. It, we, yeah, back in like 2020, 2021 who was constantly giving shout outs. It's like, you got to check out what's going on in Oklahoma. And I had never heard, you know, you've heard of Texas mycology. Um, Austin, I think has like a mycology community, but I never heard anything about Oklahoma. And I guess you didn't either. And that's why it started. Or how did, how did Oklahoma fungi tell, come together? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a pretty good reason for why I started it. There was a lot going on outside of Oklahoma. And I felt like everything I was learning online or reading about on YouTube or watching on Instagram. Uh, I was absorbing everything, but it, and it was so awesome to, to have those as tools, but ultimately I wanted to go and meet these people in person. I wanted to do these workshops. And so by starting the company, I realized that I could also help to connect with the local community and help anyone else who was interested. So, um, you know, listening to the Mushroom Hour is actually where I came across uh, Myco Mentor uh, the owner of Performance Fungi. He's actually the one who mentored me into cultivation. So prior to 2020, the only, um, you know, the only passion I had for cultivation or the only real interest I had was from a couple YouTube videos from Willie Maiko. So I'm definitely, you know, shout out to the TTF family. Thank you, Willie Maiko, for those videos back in 2017. But up until then, my, my curiosity in cultivation really got heightened by the interest in local varieties and so not only being able to grow mushrooms at home but being able to grow mushrooms that grew in our state locally and so by starting Oklahoma fungi and learning more about cultivation under the mentorship of Michael mentor of course then I was able to get some cultivation down start offering workshops start ordering supplies and larger quantities and fast forward to 2024, and we've been in 22 authorized retailers. We do online sales. And if you want to learn more about any of that kind of stuff, you can check out our website, oklahomafungi.com, for more information. Well, that's an amazing synopsis. And thank you for very gently nudging me in the right direction. Yes, it is Myco Mentor. I need to get that through my head. There's been a full overhaul on what that team is doing. Myco Mentor, it's a podcast, it's cultivation, it's all kinds of things. And uh, he, the Myco mentor himself has touched a lot of people. And he was actually the first person I ever interviewed on Mushroom Hour. I think sequentially, I think we had to re-record the interview or something because it was like, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but yeah, what a hugely influential person. So I'm not surprised that he was at the genesis of what's going on there in Oklahoma. So a proud yeah. lineage you are sporulating there. Yeah, I was. I went from ordering products as a customer of his, and you know, kind of bugging him with questions. And then he eventually was like, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to do a consultation program where you can email me, you can text me, you can ask me whatever you want about whatever you're doing uh, as a way to help growers." And so I was like, "That's hey, that's what I need because I don't 
before 2020 really had no uh, experience in cultivation of oyster mushrooms, of lion's mane, of all these different delicious gourmet edible varieties. And he was really crushing it. And I decided that, you know, not only was I, did I want to be a customer of his, but I also wanted to be an apprentice. And if he was offering the opportunity, I definitely felt like it was worth it to, to jump on it. And I'm so grateful I did because without his guidance and him really teaching me and helping me not to cut corners, but to save time. You know, he taught me a lot of things mm. that he learned the hard way. And so that's what yeah. I really appreciate. I used to sterilize my grain jars as a low scale hobbyist cultivator. I would sterilize in between every cycle, spending a lot of time cleaning, etc., just to re-sterilize. And so there's certain things as you grow your, like get to a commercial size, there's certain things that you change about your operation and having someone that can offer that guidance was really crucial to my success. And I'm forever grateful to, to Michael Mentor for that. Well, and I know so many people, especially where we are in Northern California, but I think starting in 2020, pretty much everywhere in the U.S., someone knew someone who was becoming a hobbyist mushroom cultivator. Uh, and, you know, we're broadcasting here, KPCA out of Petaluma, California. So I know people listening have known they're mushroom people. There's tons of them here. Um, but it's really cool to hear that story of how you wanted to be more than a hobbyist, more than someone who just grew some mushrooms to take it to the next level. And like in anything else, having a mentor, in this case, Myco mentor that we've mentioned so many times, but he, he was able to kind of do more than just what a book can do or an online forum can do and work with you through your specific process, which is so invaluable. And it's amazing to hear that you know, he's doing that now for more and more people because it's something that's totally necessary for someone to jump from that hobby cultivator to grow into a small scale local mushroom farm, which I'm a big believer that we need more of. And I'm excited to hear what you think about that. Like the network of producers the U.S. could could create. Um, it's going to take people making that jump in their area. And that takes more micro mentorship. Uh, so really cool to hear that story. And before we move on to uh, really curious to hear what are the strains there you're dealing with? in Oklahoma, because obviously if we're talking cultivation, we're kind of not in the world of the mycorrhizal. We're not necessarily in the world of morels. You know, what, what kind of mushrooms are you cultivating there that grow in Oklahoma? Yeah. So the, my number one, my favorite that I always talk about, and <laughs> it's just going to be lion's mane. It's everyone's favorite. It's a delicious mushroom. Oklahoma's filled with oaks and it's a really prevalent mushroom. So especially you know, right now in the winter when it gets really cold, we see a lot of fruiting bodies that pop up around state parks, around city parks. And it's really awesome to be able to go out and not only get some mushrooms for dinner, but also be able to take a tissue sample, clone those varieties and grow them indoors and see how they compare to commercial varieties. Because oftentimes, mushrooms that are grown outdoors, mushrooms that you forage locally, those genetics are, have a little bit more vigor. They grow a little bit faster as compared to the commercial varieties that are used to specific temperatures with specific environmental conditions. So I've really found it a fascinating and big passion in foraging mushrooms, but also collecting those and putting them into my genetic library. That's where that world of foraging and cultivation can meet in the coolest way. I mean, this is the project that I think it was Jay Schindler who came on up from uh, Fungi for the People who talked about his collection of local strains that he had put together, you know, your mycobank. Mm -hmm. And what you're able to do with that. Now, where did that fit in? I mean, it doesn't all have to be sequential, but like you start Oklahoma Fungi, you want to cultivate. Was it always kind of in your mind? Like, I want to go out and capture, you know, catalog my local species and grow those. Was that kind of at the start of this thing? 
Yeah, it was, it was, I was actually inspired by seeing other people go out online and find stuff. And I was just like, how come no one I know is finding these cool mushrooms? Like, do these mushrooms even grow here? And so that's when I started looking on iNaturalist. I was recommended iNaturalist by uh, a friend on Instagram. And from that moment on, I started using iNaturalist to, to find good foraging places, to make observations, etc. And I just found that there's not a lot going on in Oklahoma for mushrooms. There's a lot of people who are seeing the mushrooms, but they're not identifying them as research grade. It's more people just taking a picture and posting it and unsure of what it is. And I've even spoken with uh, Mandy Quark about this. She said historically, uh, I, I believe that Oklahoma is underrepresented in when it comes to iNaturalist observations, especially for kingdom fungi. So, you know, this was something that it wasn't, I, I didn't grow up foraging. My parents didn't teach me about mushroom foraging. This is something that really in 2020, I got interested in cultivation. And then I was really interested how people were finding the mushrooms I was trying so hard to cultivate. And that made me want to go out and find them and kind of compare them. And what, you know, the, the pinnacle of, of that experience was finding our native Psilocybe cubensis and being able to collect spores and redistribute spores throughout the community. So we call that Oklahoma wild. And it's just been such a pleasure to, to be able to help kind of spearhead, not just foraging and cultivation, but also access to, to anything that people want to research. Wow. So just by wanting to pursue this, I mean, wanting to get interested in mycology. I think we all know how underexplored the biodiversity of fungi is, but what a potent story where in an entire state, which is a pretty big landmass, you were a person who said, I just want to do this. And suddenly you became like a focal point of cultivation community, foraging community, psychedelic community, just by getting involved, being interested, being passionate I see that all the time with people we talk to because mycology is such a giant space. And I think there are people that get in their own head about that, that like, oh, you know, Jacob's already doing it in Oklahoma. This is one person in a state. I mean, mm -hmm. there's so much more room for people to get involved, express their interests. And I think your story really highlights that beautifully. And is there a lion's mane strain or is there a strain that you kind of first captured that is the Oklahoma version that, that stands out to you in your mind? Yeah, the, so there's actually, from where I'm sitting right now, 30 minutes away, there's a collection spot where every year I can go and collect this. I, I posted it earlier on Instagram about three months ago, and it's about a 15-pound lion's mane inside of this tree. And so every year I can expect some chonkers anywhere from <laughs> 8 to 15 pounds consistently. And so that those that species in particular... Um, it has, is near and dear to me because I love it. Being able to go is not like you wouldn't typically think that uh, I live, I can see the state capital from my backyard. So, wow. you know, li living that close in an urban area and being able to drive 30 minutes out, find your oyster mushrooms, your woody or your chanterelles, your morels, your lion's mane, all those delicious edibles. Uh, I'm really grateful for, but the lion's mane in particular, I just loved so much because even when I put it on plates and put it in cold storage, it's still fruits. And that's because it's used to growing out in these really cold temperatures. And right. so it's really hard to get it to slow down its metabolism without changing those <laughs> agar recipes. And so it's so interesting to put these plates in there next to each other. And you see that the commercial lion's mane will stay nice and kind of dormant, if you will, 
whereas the other one just keeps on growing. And so it's, it's so fascinating to see a lion's mane plate covered with all those interesting spines. That's amazing. And it, I mean, sparks off so many fireworks in my head about like the untold frontiers, you know, are the strains we're even working with in cultivation, are these even close to the best strains? I mean, if you're going 30 minutes from your house and you've got the chonker, you know, heresium species, <laughs> what else is out there? And that's always the thing, right? With mycologies, what else is out there? What is left to be explored, whether they're in Oklahoma or here in Northern California, what strains are, are we going to come across? And for you, what does that cataloging look like? I mean, obviously you've got your own bank. Are you guys doing sequencing? I know this is asking a lot of someone who's like just a couple years in, you've built a business, you've been doing so much, but have you been looking at, you know, and this kind of spills into another question about differences between species or subspecies, or is it just differences in individuals? Like that's the heresium mm -hmm. from that tree. And it is going to be genetically distinct, but not so much that we need to create a new species. I mean, what are your thoughts about that level of cataloging? Or is it mostly just kind of cataloging for your own use in your own bank? Yeah, so when I, when I find a new variety that I like, I'll try and isolate it. Not only will I put it in my bank, but I'll also offer it. And if people want to know more, more information about these local varieties, you can find them on the website. So I have all the different information about these varieties and where they're collected at. And it's really important to me that people, if they want to grow something that's local, that's native to them, that they have the opportunity to do that. And so mm. for me specifically, people who want to grow outdoor logs, putting those lion's mane if it's native to our area is going to work a lot better than inoculating with a commercial variety. So not only is it for the personal side, but it's also to help other growers have better success when they're growing outdoor low tech, or if they're also interested in exploring genetic diversity. Yeah. I love that idea using local and you, you at this point know that cultivation landscape better than I do. I mean, is this something, a movement you think, is kind of popular with growers, maybe like small to mid-scale growers. Do you think people are stretching more and more to try to find those kind of local genetics? Um, because when I hear that idea, and I know for so many people that are into mycology, into foraging, right, you think of like local food movements, these are all kind of in the same milieu and people are interested in all those things together. So this seems to be the right direction in a way. Uh, do you think that's kind of gaining in popularity with cultivators? Is it maybe, maybe it's somewhere yeah. in between. But. I definitely think it's gaining popularity with hobbyists and people who are just now getting into foraging because not only are they used to cultivating mushrooms, but now that they're going outdoors, like I was, they're able to find some of these mushrooms and whether they, they fail cloning the mushroom the first time that they can still get back out there in that same identity, that same collection site. So for me, it's really about you know, getting people out there, getting them collecting. And if you know a, a, a hobbyist or someone who's growing at home wants to cultivate these local varieties, they're a little bit more uh, resilient. They're a little bit more like relaxed in the sense that they don't the, the temperature fluctuations, the lack of humidity sometimes. And so outdoors is a lot harder to grow compared to indoors where you can pamper your mushrooms. So when it comes to the commercial aspect of that, most times people like to work on a schedule. They want to know that their mushrooms are going to fruit by a certain day so they can take them to market or so they can extract them so they can do some other process. But for the most time, I think that the commercial growers are going to stick with commercial varieties that kind of have this schedule, kind of have this range that they can work within. Now, there are growers like Mossy Creek Mushrooms and a couple other growers around the U.S. who are trying to cultivate these commercial varieties 
and but not just those, but they're trying to cultivate the local varieties side by side. And Mossy Creek mushroom specifically, I believe, is doing some uh, interspecies hybridization of of local collected mushroom with commercial strains, and so. I think it's really fascinating and it's kind of yet to be explored. I think that the best taste or the largest yield or the best flavor profile uh, we've yet to explore. I think right now everyone's just cultivating for a nice looking lion's mane because that's the hottest mushroom on the market, if you ask me. Right, right. Yeah, I'm seeing lion's mane everywhere and I appreciate you kind of walking us through some of those challenges to kind of bringing those local strains, so your local strains of wild lion's mane or wild mushrooms, bringing them in to cultivate them on a mushroom farm and make it a business, of course there's going to be challenges to doing that. These are can be unruly organisms and they don't always <laughs> want to fit neatly into our production schedule. So yeah, that... Exactly. You, you nailed it perfectly. They do not want to fit into your schedule. They want you to fit into their schedule. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, a lot of ways you have to learn their schedule. That is the art of doing what Jacob and other cultivators do. For people listening who want to go out, they're already interested in mushroom foraging and they want to start doing this. I mean, what are the early steps, maybe the early story of how you first started culturing from a wild mushroom? Because I know it's fraught. Like I have tried it and yeah. I think 10 out of 10 plates were contaminated, right? Because I didn't like split the <laughs> mushroom correctly. I didn't get the... So, Walk through that a little bit, maybe through telling your own story or just like advice you have for people that want to take that foraging for wild mushrooms. Maybe they find the chonker and they want that piece to then cultivate later. Explain that process a little bit. Yeah, so I'll start with a funny story, but I just want to say real quick that tomorrow I'm actually giving a full in-depth presentation about collecting mushrooms in the field and taking them back to the lab and regrowing those same genetics at the Our Future Conference by Matt Powers. So Amazing. it's a free conference. You can tune in virtually. I'll be going through my entire story of finding our native Psilocybe cubensis and bringing it back to the lab, etc. But hopping into this story. So when I first started foraging, of course, you know, I didn't realize what I needed. I didn't know what I needed to go out and have. So, But what I did know is that I could join a Facebook group and see what everyone was posting. And so even though I couldn't find the mushrooms, other people could find them. <laughs> and then I could drive to their house and get right. a clone and then just chit chat with other mushroom enthusiasts. And that seems kind of like a long shot. And for a long time, I never got anywhere, maybe about two or three months. But as soon as it started to get cold outside, there was a lady in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, which is about three and a half hours from where I live. And she posted a massive lion's mane. Like she's, she said that she was driving and she looked out her car and she saw a white basketball on a tree. <laughs> and so she pulled over and picked it and then brought it home on Facebook and was offering samples to anyone who wanted some. And so being a fresh mushroom forager cultivator, I had no clue where I could find lion's mane in Oklahoma. But I did know there was a lady on Facebook who said I could drive to her place and get some. I message her, I ask if I can come out, she says yes. I drive out there that day. Believe me, like this time, I, do, I don't know how to clone mushrooms, I don't know how to do any of the sterile technique. All I know is that I'm gonna collect this mushroom and bring it back home in the fridge until I can learn how to do that. Long story short, by the time I got to collect the mushroom at her house, we put it in a plastic bag and we sealed it. Oh, that's not it, the best first step. Exactly. And so then I proceeded to drive three and a half hours home. 
get back home, take that bag, put it in the fridge. And as you, as you know, that, that temperature, that humidity and that sealed environment was, was terrible for the, the cloning uh, process. So I ended up getting about 20, I would say about 20 plates because I ordered a 20 pack, all mold and uh, different (laughs) fungi growing, nothing, nothing that looked like heresium. So I ended up spending, you know, a little over six hours, a bunch of gas and a bunch of time trying to clone a wild mushroom that I really didn't know how to clone. Right. Right. But I was so interested and this lady on Facebook had some and I had no clue where to get it. So it was worth a shot. And I think honestly, that failed attempt is kind of what drove me to keep going. And and I think that's common for a lot of people. Yeah, I've heard that story a lot. The like grand attempt and failure is a big part of what sets the whole journey in motion. And I love that, that you're just showing up to the stranger's house. She thinks you're some mushroom expert. You're like, I just want this lion's mane and you bring it back and, you know, you get home and there's like this melted mushroom. I mean, that's pretty epic first story. So in that, we can learn a lot for people that don't want to do it that way, right? Don't seal your mushroom. Don't put it in the heat humidity during transport. Um, Yes. As a couple of tips, if you were to go out mushroom foraging today, I recommend taking a mesh foraging bag. So it's a bag that has all these tiny holes that allows the spores to spread throughout the forest. You can also use a basket. You can use a paper bag. You can put some holes in the paper bag if you need to. There's a couple of other options. I think like wax paper is one of them. You know, for the most part, when you put these mushrooms in a sealed bag, because they have so much water and because they are wild forage, they're going to have a lot of bacteria and yeast all over their surface. And as soon as you seal them up in a humid environment, those other organisms are going to thrive. And so if you're wanting to get out mushroom foraging, the best thing you can do is take a, a paper bag, take a mesh bag. And that'll really help you to to see nice, healthy mushrooms from the field by the time you get home. And then what is your secret to actually splitting and sampling? Because I've had a few people, you know, we used to have in uh, Oakland, there's a place called the Omni Commons Bay Area Applied Mycology. We had a little lab in Flowhood there. That was years ago now. And I'd done some attempts at working with wild mushrooms and I had someone showing me like how to grip it and, you know, break it open to expose the inside, um, it, again, varying levels of success. But what is your like technique? Now we're audio, so we can't see any. But how how you actually get a get a sample, a successful sample out of a wild mushroom? I personally love to clone in the field. Oh, so I take I take agar plates, a scalpel, a lighter, some parafilm out with me in the field. So. I have videos on my YouTube channel on how to actually clone in the field. So when you're out hiking or when you're backpacking, take some agar with you because you never know what you'll find. And you might not have enough space to take the whole mushroom, but you can take a little piece of its tissue. Now, most people will start to think, well, it's going to contaminate. And it, it probably will, but your organism will have enough time to grow just a little bit and then be able to transfer out. Mm-hmm. And so it's not about that cloning in the wild is foolproof. You're definitely going to see some contamination. And there have been a few times, like one or once or twice, where I've cloned in the field and I've done it quick enough where I haven't seen anything else grow. Wow. But for the most, for the most part, you will see other, other organisms start to grow after a little bit. But by that time, you can make some clean transfers out. And so when I go out in the field, if I have all my stuff with me, I won't harvest the mushroom and take it home and do it in the lab. I'll just do it there. 
but then I'll leave that specimen that I cloned at that location to continue spreading spores. I love the in the field too, because somehow that makes it more approachable. Like you don't need a flow hood. You don't need mm-hmm. all the most fancy equipment. You can do this. And, and yeah, so much of at least, I mean, especially for hobby cultivators and stuff like that, getting comfortable co- with contamination is one element. And yes, your organism will still compete and generate. And then you can on that Petri dish, take what is still your organism without contamination, cut a little square of that out and put it on a new dish give it a new area and slowly kind of get rid of those different contaminants. But that kind of in the field cloning, I think makes that more approachable. And I could see people now, like I love foraging already. You know, you can get agar plates online that are ready made and just get enough familiarity to do that even and start building a wild collection. I, I love hearing yeah, and that. For me, because I didn't grow up foraging because all of this is so new to me from what I've learned, I try and, re like regurgitate in a way that's accessible for people to learn but also get involved because the information Mm. is great but it's actually trying to get them to do something on their own with the information so i can stand up on stage and talk about how cool mushroom forging is all day but if i can't find a point where they're inspired to get out there and go forging without without me there then you know then i've done something wrong so i really try my best to break it down to where it's incredibly accessible you're also inspired. And at the end of my talk or my presentation or hanging out with me, you're just like, yeah, I'm interested in mushrooms and I want to get out there. Right. Give the knowledge, some of the stoke to get people out there. And it sounds like then that that education piece, you know, maybe maybe you are now becoming the Myco mentor in your own way. Um, <laughs> but it sounds like that's part of your I mean, mission now, right? Or, or I guess break down to us kind of yeah. the pillars of Oklahoma fungi today. Cause if you go to the page, you go to the website, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of initiatives. Jacob's on every podcast at every conference, but what, what is kind of the pillars of what Oklahoma fungi is and what your mission is now? Plain and simple education for everyone. And that's for, for me, that's what it, what it really comes down to as number one, because this is something that I wish I would have learned. I wish my parents would have learned, my grandparents would have learned. And it's just about getting this information out there so that every generation that, that can hear this can make sure that every generation that comes after us has this information is not, is not continued to further delay our intellect and our ability to understand how these organisms are helping our planet and helping us. And so education is so important to me. And because it, it took a lot for me to learn, I also want to make it more accessible for people to learn to, you know, much like my co-mentor helped me by being able to host the Oklahoma Mushroom Festival. I still get messages today of people saying, hey, this is my first time going mushrooms ever since I got this at the Mushroom Festival. And so it's really nice to be able to help inspire other people to start their mushroom journey whether it's just foraging or it's cultivating, or maybe it's starting a company to be able to pay it forward is something that I've really fallen in love with. And especially that's all just come through my passion for education. Yeah. And, you know, in talking with so many people that are into the mycological arts, if you will, there is so much of that. And I don't know if this comes with just working with other organisms and getting to know them, but people start talking in these like deeper timescales scales 
Jacob's like, it's not even about my generation. This is about future generations <laughs> getting literacy and developing better relationships with these organisms. And I feel like I say that to people all the time. And you hear some other people speak about it. You hear like a Reggie or Will Padilla or Mike, a mentor speak about it. And they're already on like, oh my God, my kids are going to be the great mycologists that I wish I was and their kids. So it is really cool to hear that. And I'm not surprised to hear that in your message. You're like, this is an, a multi-generational thing. We're building something here. Yeah, like my, my youngest sister is, she just turned 18. But when I started this company four years ago, she was just, just turned 15. And I made sure that everything I was learning, I was teaching her. I was telling her what mycelium was, hyphae. Yes. I was bringing her and her, uh, her one of her friends foraging, even though they didn't want to go. I was like, well, you guys are stuck with me today and this is what I'm doing. <laughs> and so, you know, it was like, it wasn't something that I had to share with my sister, but it was something that I, I wanted to. I wanted to make sure that even if she had zero interest in mushrooms, that everything I had told her, she had heard at least once before. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of that, that sense of familiarity, that sense of confidence. My brother told me this, or, and it's not even about her being interested in foraging. It's about her being safe as a young adult and making sure that she makes good decisions. And so for me, having the, you know, the ability to identify mold on a fruiting body that's been dried out versus, you know, one that looks clean. I think that these, these types of tips and tricks, if you will, into the mushroom world are really important to not just, um, you know, everyone who's already growing mushrooms, but to the, the people who are just now getting into it. Yeah, when well, I was thinking, you know, there's this whole piece where mycology is so interesting and so novel. It's a great window in which to bring people through into an appreciation of greater biology. You know, so much of our culture mm. is not very biologically literate. We don't know the trees around us. We don't know the flora, fauna, fungi, fungi around us, flora, fauna, fungi. And so mycology is such an interesting way to get people into that world where suddenly they're appreciating by appreciating this organism that's kind of the glue and is physically connecting so many things. They get connected to so much of biology. But you just hit another big piece, which is the practical like harm reduction, both in a foraging scenario. I mean, think about like a food scenario, mold and food, but then like a psychedelic scenario, understanding what you're looking at when you're looking at a fruit body. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's really all these angles in which this knowledge becomes really important moving into what seems like a increasingly mycocentric future. Now, has the psilocybe, the psychedelic angle, has that always been kind of part and parcel with this passion for you? So I'll be honest, it was it was something that I was really interested in after seeing that first Willie Myco video in 2017. Okay. And the you know, the 3 years after that, I was like, "Whoa, this is so cool." After uh, experiencing it for my first time, I remember telling my girlfriend, who's now my wife, I, was, I just remember <laughs> looking at her and saying, I can't believe a mushroom can do this. Yeah. yeah. And because it, before that, my only ever experience with mushrooms were on my pizza as button mushrooms or <laughs> in some Asian cuisine as shiitake. Yeah. I had never heard about mushrooms helping trees or helping the uh, you know the underground mycorrhizal system. I hadn't heard about all these fascinating things until after I got into that first experience, and many years later. And so, you know, like a lot of people, my first introduction into the world, into the awe and wonder of mushrooms, was through that psychedelic experience. Fast forward through those years, I was still interested, but I knew that when I started Oklahoma Fungi, I couldn't make it my focus. Yeah. I live in a state where it's incredibly difficult and very um, 
very restricted, if you will, uh, for for mushrooms. And like a lot of states, for a lot of people who are listening, and there's there's very few cities in comparatively in the United States that have decriminalized or that have movements movements that are in favor of cultivation. And so at the time, I knew that I needed to focus on gourmet mushrooms and making myself, um, in a sense, a very clear as day that I'm doing legal things because it's you know because at the times there were no other mushroom companies that were at the farmer's market or selling mushrooms or teaching education classes. I needed to make it black and white that I was a family-friendly mushroom educator and not a psychedelic mushroom grower. And so for me, by coming up with this cute little logo, as I'm sure you've (laughs) seen around, having the most common mushroom in the world, the Amanita muscaria, the one that's on our iPhone emoji, putting a really big smile on it, some cute eyes and a peace sign, I felt like was the most approachable way to get people to think about mushrooms positively without thinking about mushrooms in a psychedelic sense. So in my audience here in Oklahoma City, my, a lot of my followers, there are a lot of families, a lot of inner urban communities that have families, families of four who are interested in spending time outdoors. So I wanted to make sure that I was accessible to those families, that I could talk with mom and dad about growing whatever mushrooms they wanted to grow, but also let them buy grow kits for the kids if their kids wanted to grow mushrooms. So in a sense, I wasn't trying to hide it, but I just knew that if it was my main selling point or my main uh, that I educated about psychedelics, that I would get shut down very quickly. And unfortunately, in Oklahoma, uh, I have some friends that have spent some time uh, that have felonies because of the charges for mushroom foraging in the pasture fields. So I have a, a some experience and I'm just not interested in, in going through that. And I just I just would love to continue to promote education to families and continue to promote it in a positive way to keep people out of jail, to keep people safe, to keep people informed and to grow whatever mushrooms they want to grow at home. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your frankness and kind of laying that out. Cause I think every person who does anything in the world of mycology eventually has to reconcile their relationship with the ever culturally relevant psychedelic aspect, which is hundred percent of the time when you tell someone you do a mushroom podcast, you tell someone you cultivate mushrooms. I guess if you're talking to someone above like 16 years old, their their response is, Oh, you mean like psychedelics? So Mm -hmm. you have to figure out what your relationship with that aspect of mycology is going to be. And I think I find a lot of myself in what you're saying in that I wanted to kind of to make it very clear that that is not my focus mycology fungi mushrooms as organisms are incredible they can do so many things but yes also be realistic that that is one of the potent incredible stories contained within this entire queendom kingdom of life is that they have that effect on us and our consciousness but there's so much more that i want to be able to share and yeah i mean just hearing people going to prison here i mean it sounds ridiculous i'm sure to a lot of people listening and you know we're broadcasting KPCA, Northern California, but up here in Northern California, it's been so normalized, you know, microdosing and psychedelics. And it's easy to forget that a lot of people that want this knowledge, a lot of people are just in legislative environments where it's not okay. And they can be putting themselves and their family at risk for pursuing something that we see as totally natural and even innocuous. If, even if it is just foraging. I mean, it's a and fortunate truth is like I have a friend that spent 10 years behind bars for foraging mushrooms out in a cow pasture. That's I mean, these are naturally a naturally occurring mushroom that he had no intention of cultivating 
all he's out doing is foraging. And I just find it so appalling that, you know, our laws can restrict us from foraging these organisms that grow here naturally. And I find it so interesting that not only do we prohibit foraging, do we prohibit all these organisms, we don't know anything about them. <laughs> and here in Oklahoma specifically, we have an Oklahoma psilocybin research program that was put up for um, last, last year was put up. It passed the House of Representatives. It got to the Senate. The Senate recommended to the Health and Human Services Committee, and then the session ended. On February 5th, our session begins, and we're hoping that we can get this medical research bill through for our veterans. But mm. right now, a majority of the, the hard work that we're, in, that we're dealing with is that the 788, the cannabis medical program that passed in Oklahoma, has done, if you will, some of the legislators uh, rub them the wrong way. And so they don't want to see something else pass when they hear a medical program. They don't want mushroom dispensaries. They don't want mushroom sales and all of this other stuff. So right now, education is the only thing that we can provide them to let them know that, you know, this research for PTSD, for anxiety, for depression, for uh, smoking cessation, for alcoholism, this has nothing to do with selling mushrooms at a dispensary. And so I really try and emphasize that education is the focal point of Oklahoma fungi. And even though I do know a lot about psychedelics, I do talk about them in person. I don't talk about them much online. And that's mainly because I just don't want to lose my platform. And right. two years ago, I was at the Oakland Psychedelic Conference and I had people ask me, oh, whoa, what are, what are you doing here? And, you know, so people don't really see me as a psychedelic educator, as a psychedelic enthusiast. I'm very much a part of that community but I just can't promote that in the same way that I promote my family-friendly education. So there's a place for both of them, but when I reside in Oklahoma, I choose to reside with the family-friendly educator. When I come out to California, I'll be a little bit wild. <laughs> you can let it all out. Well, it's just so interesting to hear about that dynamic and really how important that work is then. I mean, you are kind of the frontline, heifel tip, kind of getting that culture more acclimated to relationships with mushrooms and what this means. And, and I would assume you've gotten support from your allies in California and people, because there have obviously been people who have been through some of these same issues. I'm thinking of psychedelic advocates here in California who ran up against the same objections that kind of stemmed from what happened with medicalized cannabis. And so I would imagine then you have that community kind of helping you and piping and support ideas and all that kind of thing. Yeah, and going going to more mushroom conferences and events, I just meet more and more people who are not only uh, from places where it's passed, but I meet a lot more people places where it hasn't. And they're looking mm -hmm. at me like I'm the intermediary because yeah. they see what's going on with mushrooms and they see how Oklahoma is kind of the Wild West for cannabis. They think that it's going to happen for mushrooms. And so I find myself not just kind of like feeling like I'm behind, but some people are like, no, you're, you're kind of in between. And so, you know, here in Oklahoma, because we have such a loose medical program, there's a lot of thought that if this mushroom program passes, that it will be just as loose. But the, the actual literature, when you read the bill, it authorizes a university to work directly with a private research entity, directly with a physician. There's no commercial sales. There's no commercial permits for applying for retail. And so there's a big idea that it's going to change and it's going to happen just like it did with, with cannabis. But in you know, it's not going to happen like that here. And so what we can do is provide the education so that way our veterans and then from our veteran group, we can expand that to everyone else and start accepting some end-of-life care and anyone else that a physician can recommend. Well, and it takes this kind of thoughtful movement to 
create that kind of research environment, safety environment that you want and prevent it from going because if you don't allow it to kind of go through those channels, it will, it's always going to be commercialized. Sorry, legislators. It's always going to be commercialized. So if we want it to move forward in some way that's productive, because we will inevitably keep having relationships with this, these organisms and the substances in them, it's kind of behooves them to engage in this process. So there's so much there. And I just want to remind people listening, we're talking to Jacob DeVecchio, Oklahoma fungi, telling an amazing story of the movement of kind of mycological awareness in Oklahoma and especially psychedelic mushroom awareness in Oklahoma. Whereas, like I said, in areas like here in California or other areas like Denver, I mean, we don't think of it as much, uh, but you're there in the midst of what could be a big movement. And yeah, maybe people who are coming to you saying like, Jacob, you might be showing us a way you might be if, if this is me laying this out, if you're going through uh, a political structure that is a little more resistant than others might be, maybe this is a roadmap for how to do it successfully in a lot of different places. Yeah. And I, you know, attending the Southwest Fungafest back in July, I actually got to meet with some activists and lobbyists from New Mexico who had been dealing with a lot of these same struggles. And so it was inspiring to me to meet with people who have been doing it longer than I have and who gave me tips and tricks on what I can do. And then I can pass those along to other people. And, you know, for anyone listening, the number one thing that you can do to help bring awareness to mushrooms in the city or state that you live is find someone or start your local mushroom event. Whether you have a local mushroom society, get involved. Mm. If there's a local mushroom company that does education classes, get involved. The more that we can do together as a community to get mushrooms on people's minds, the better off and the better chances that we have of getting something passed. If all they ever hear about is magic mushroom bus and drug deals and all that stuff, they're never going to want to pass a medicinal mushroom program. But if they hear about the Oklahoma Mushroom Festival that brought 1,700 people and you know 12 people from out of states and all these great things, they're going to be interested because they're, they're definitely not doing anything illegal there. So I think that it's all about sparking interest in mushrooms in a positive way and really getting the movement to think about mushrooms in that positive aspect and not so much the, the negative. And you're living proof. I, I want to talk about why mushrooms are in the news there in Oklahoma, but tell us about the Oklahoma Mushroom Festival because we talked a lot about Oklahoma Fungi, which is your business education platform. I mean, really uh, a, a massive effort you're putting in there, but tell us about the Oklahoma Mushroom Festival. Yeah, so the Oklahoma Mushroom Festival took place on National Mushroom Day last year. That is October 15th, and it was a big party. This is something that I, of course, have always been wanting to, to attend in Oklahoma ever since I heard about mushrooms and mushroom festivals. I thought it was the coolest thing, and I wanted to attend. And so last year, I actually went to eight different festivals, starting in, in the beginning of the year all the way until my last festival was in Denver for the Denver Psychedelic Conference. And so I was attending all these different festivals, networking, meeting with people, trying to get ideas and meet with speakers on how I could come up with an event for Oklahoma. Before last year, there had never been a mushroom festival. There's Oklahoma Mycological Society, but they haven't had any annual events. So I took it upon myself to really host the first state's mushroom festival, to invite speakers, to invite sponsors and vendors. We had 65 vendors. Five of those were food vendors. They sold out by noon because we had 1,700. They said 1,700 people show up. 
And it was a truly incredible day. It was at the Oklahoma City Public Farmers Market. So it's an indoor venue. It's two stories and it was jam packed full. And so it was a truly incredible event. And actually, um, on Thursday of this week, I'll be touring the venue for the second annual festival. So if you want to know more, definitely check out the website to learn more information. Now, would that be at OklahomaFungi.com or is there a separate website for the festival? For right now, it's always a page on OklahomaFungi.com. Perfect. But if you do want to follow on Instagram, it is at OKMushroomFestival. So you can check that out and I'll post more updates as soon as I can. Now, what was that like? I mean, were you more anxious, excited? Because organizing an event like that is crazy. And I know you've got all the right allies in the community to like help you and give you advice and, and be there, right? Like you've got all the coolest people that would want to be there. But yeah, tell, tell us about that like day of, what was that day like for Jacob? So I had never planned an event larger than 50 people. <laughs> so going from <laughs> an event, uh, you know, basically the size of a classroom to filling up an entire venue, an two stories. Yeah. Yeah. It, w- it was a whirlwind. And actually the day before the festival, I didn't sleep. So I was <laughs> up for 48 hours straight. And even at the festival, if you talk with a couple of attendees or vendors, I was kind of going everywhere, right? It was my yeah. first festival, my first event, and there was more people than I could have ever dreamed when I was telling vendors and sponsors about the event, I was uh, advertising it as 500 people in attendance. 500 people was a big number for me. I had right. no idea how I was going to meet 500. And then slowly, sponsors started picking up. They started talking with each other. Vendors started reaching out. Speakers started uh, reaching out. And it was through this networking of paying money to go to all these other conferences out of state that it actually benefited me because I was able to network with people who wanted to come and check out what I had going on. And so 100%. it was really cool. Like it was a full circle moment when Michael mentor got to come to the Oklahoma mushroom festival and give a talk about the benefits of medicinal and functional mushrooms for veterans and be able to hang out and talk with him and, and see him do really well at his vendor booth. And so it was truly awesome to be able to promote an event and, and to be able to see the community grow from it. I love hearing that story. And I love hearing you tell your story because you're still very much, I mean, you're building something and we're getting to see it from someone who was an enthusiast turned and it just kind of demystifies. I guess that's what I want to say. And you said it earlier that you're really good at, or what you want to do is kind of break things down to an approachable level and it like demystifies it. And you start, I start thinking, hearing you like, I could do this. We could do this. I'm sure so many listeners are like, yeah, we could do this. Let's do the, the Petaluma Mushroom Festival. Let's do it. Yes. So I love hearing that. And then I would imagine then for year two, bigger and better. Yes. So we will not be hosting at the same venue because we had a line outside of the venue that took 45 minutes to get in the door. (laughs) And so we need a much larger venue. And that, like I said, I'll be touring that this Thursday and I'll be working with some uh, nationally known artists for the festival design poster. I'm really excited for that. A lot of you are going to recognize his work. He does stuff for the Telluride Mushroom Festival. Um, so fingers crossed that we can get something going. I'm really excited. And uh, yeah, more details to come. Hopefully by the end of this week, the second annual Mushroom Festival right now is looking to be the second weekend of October. Second weekend of October, Oklahoma Mushroom Festival. What an amazing story. And it's so cool. I mean, we started following each other on Instagram yeah, whatever, 2020, 2021, whatever it was. Uh, and it's been just stunning to watch the growth and what you've been able to 
just keep working at it, what you've been able to to put together there. What are the frontiers in your mind or what are like some of the future plans, whether that's, I guess I want to break that into two questions, future for Oklahoma fungi and then like future frontier of mycology, like some question in mycology you want to explore more deeply. Maybe that's something around like local strains or cultivation tech or something like that. But future for Oklahoma fungi is a platform in business. And then for you, some like burning question in mycology or frontier in mycology you're really curious about. Yeah, so the, the first one about uh, Oklahoma fungi, the, my next really big project before the second annual mushroom festival is to release Oklahoma's first ever mushroom guide. So there's never been an official mushroom guide for our state. There's one for Kansas, Arkansas, Missouri, Colorado, Texas, New Mexico, every state that surrounds us, but ours. And we have 12 different ecoregions in our state. So the southeast corner is drastically different from the northwest. We've got 12 different ecoregions that are diagonally kind of like ge- geographically located. And so Whoa. it's really interesting the diversity in Oklahoma. And not only is it understudied, but in Texas, there are mushrooms that are only found in Texas. And like they're just now being found in Oklahoma. So they're only known to occur in Texas and Oklahoma. And so it kind of piques my curiosity. You know, not, while I write this guide, yes, I know uh, there's like about, right, right now I have uh, 382 known species that through academic research banks, through working with local university professors, cross-referencing with iNaturalist research grade publications, using those to really narrow down these species, then it's going to come out with a, basically a 60, 60 species list of the most common, the most the edible, the poisonous, and then I'll even include our Psilocybe cubensis because they do grow here. And that's not commonly included in mushroom guides, but I find it really important to include. I don't want to omit what these mushrooms look like just because I don't know. I think it's incredibly important that this is a mushroom you can find here and it can cause you these interesting effects. You make, you make sure that you know what it is so you don't eat it if you don't want to. And so yeah. ultimately, the, mush, the mushroom guide is my number one project. And I'm really excited to, to be releasing that hopefully by the end of Q1 2024. I mean, what a massive labor of love talking to people that do guides. I mean, a huge amount of work. And I was curious about how you were going to scope it because they always have to figure out you can't include all 382 in one lifetime. Yeah. So how do you how do you limit it? How do you scope it? So it's interesting to hear about that kind of the top 60. And yeah, I think that's a decision that makes sense. Like, here's the most notorious mushroom that everyone knows about. Let's leave it out. Like, no, let's include it. Yeah. And- like if we're going to include the poisonous, we should also include the ones that have psychedelic effects. I don't yeah. think that I think that people should really understand that there's all these different categories of mushrooms, not just the ones that are edible and the ones that can kill you right. and the ones that are psychedelic. There's so many mushrooms that are still unknown. We don't know if they'll kill us. We don't know if they're edible. We don't know if they have psychedelic properties. Personally, I'm not the first one in line to find out, and I don't know if any of the other <laughs> listeners are either. But I, I just think that it's worth studying, it's worth sequencing to figure out what mushrooms we do have, so that way we can all be informed. I mean, education is the basis of, of really harm reduction. So by not putting what a psychedelic mushroom looks like, when someone finds it and they think it looks like an edible mushroom, they have nothing to compare it to other than the edible. And I think that having that option out there is really important. And I'm really grateful to, to have the opportunity to be able to self-publish this, to be able to self-fund this through Oklahoma Fungi, through my support of everyone who's 
uh, really shown me love over the past couple of years because I, I want to put it right back into the community and really help people get out foraging with a guide that will be truly helping them and not omitting any information. Yeah, and I think so many times, right, if we're serious about research and education, some taboos have to be put to the side to actually get to the core of what we're talking about. And that last piece there you said about getting people outside, you said something before the show, maybe it's one of those moments I can't recreate, but talk about that importance for you because you have such a big internet community, but we talked about like the festival and then you educating people in person. How important is it to connect then in person? Yeah, at in-person events and things like that. Uh, for 2023, I was doing three in-person education classes a month. So oh I was doing classes teaching in person how to cultivate. I was teaching with the Girl Scouts. I was teaching with local nonprofits. I was teaching at REI. I was Whoa. teaching at all these different really well-known organizations on how to cultivate. And then at the end of the month, we'd go out and do a foraging session, working with like local, the local cities and nonprofits and these nationally known organizations really helped to draw attention to what I was doing. And so when REI comments under my posts or when they share my stuff, it brings a lot more reputability to what I'm doing. And people realize that I'm not just out looking for psychedelic mushrooms, that I'm actually out doing something that REI is reposting or that the Girl Scouts of Oklahoma is endorsing. So I think that it's all about getting mushrooms. And William Padilla Brown does this in a really great way, but it's getting mushrooms into the mainstream. And it's getting them so popular that you, you quit thinking about the negative stuff you thought about before right. and you only think about what you hear in the here and the now. So for me, by hosting these in-person education classes, you know, the online back and forth, I read this, I read this, all that kind of disappeared. And when we're out on the trail together, we can really connect and I can really tell you what I think and you can show me pictures on your phone and we can talk about what you really think about mushroom foraging or maybe mushroom foraging is not your thing but you didn't know who else to connect with. And I was offering the free foraging classes. So, you know, offering these in-person classes, it gave me a way to connect, but it also gave me a way to learn because every time I'm out on the trail, I'm learning. So it was kind of, instead of being out by myself, I could invite some friends, hopefully learn something with them and we could all grow together. Yeah. And that last piece is so much of this, right? Like by you engaging in all this work, you're going to know more than anyone by trying to like plant your flag in the ground and hold space and try to bring people together for community. Jacob's going to like learn and absorb from everyone there. And it creates this cool collective effervescence where everyone gets to share. And I stole that from Antonio Cosme, who's been on the show. The collective effervescence of that group like has some kind of magic effect that can't be replicated online. So I really cool to hear your commitment to that. And we're just winding in the last couple minutes here. Again, we're broadcasting on KPCA public access in Petaluma here with Jacob DeVecchio of Oklahoma Fungi and the Oklahoma Mushroom Festival. It's been so amazing to hear your journey and your stories. Last like minute or two, are there any far out concepts in mycology that, you know, research papers you're reading or something you're thinking about that isn't really like on anyone's radar yet, anything like that, like frontiers of mycology? Uh, yeah, I would say medicinal, like medicinal mushroom, like compound testing, like it's, that's really like the leading edge of lab testing. So I have a, I have a background in working for an analytical lab, studying uh, water quality, soil quality, petrochemicals, like heavy metals. And so uh, I think that in the future, as you know, not only do gourmet, medicinal and functional mushrooms get more popular, but being able to identify their compounds and quantify them, I think is going to get more important. And much like we saw with CBD and hemp products, people want a COA 
They want a certificate yes. of authenticity. They want to see how much X is in their product. So that way it's verified. They know what they're taking is safe and that it's reputable product. And that is happening today. But what we see right now is a lot of beta glucan testing or starch testing right. or just uh, overall genetic testing. We don't really see a lot of the adenosine or cordycepin. We're starting to see it more with muscimol and some of the other psychedelic compounds. And, but to be quite frank, the psychedelic testing is much further along than the gourmet testing. And that's just because there's more money behind the psychedelics. And so being able to test, you know, if you look in Oregon and Colorado, the testing capabilities for a lot of these labs is incredible. They're able to test up to like 15 different compounds that have these properties. And they'll be able to isolate them and let you know how much is in each one. But right now, it's very few and far between that you'll find a lab that here in the U.S. that can do that with these medicinal slash functional mushrooms like cordyceps or turkey tail or reishi. I like lion's mane. You know, I think that it will become more important for the consumers to, to see a COA and to know that that COA actually has some quantitative data on it, not just there's no starch or something like that. Well, and you dropped a bombshell here right at the end because with how we see mushrooms pervasive everywhere, touting medicinal benefits, some people are starting to realize like, oh, maybe I don't fully understand. Maybe some of this is like marketing puffery. What's the real? What's And the way you get to the core of that is the analytics, is the chemistry. Yes. And, you know, and fungi are the great chemists of the earth. So what what better thing, you know, to really understand them is to to break it down and to understand what compounds are helping you and how can you help them to produce those compounds better. One last funny note, I will say at a local Dollar Tree, there are mushroom gummies being sold. And so there is, you know, not only are mushrooms into the dietary supplement industry, you know, at every Adkins, Whole Foods, natural grocers, etc., but they're now becoming so prevalent that they're becoming accessible on the lowest uh, of, of not the lowest, but maybe like on the most mainstream. Yeah, know, like because like you, yeah. yeah, there's just you've never I've never seen mushrooms be more widespread than being able to go to Dollar Tree and find mushrooms. That's gummies. wild. I'm scared of those yeah. gummies, but I totally see their point that you're illustrating, and it highlights the importance if they're going to enter that yeah. sphere. The, like the reason I bring that up, and and mainly this is just, when we think about medicine, we think about where it comes from. Yeah. And so if you're using these mushrooms for medicine, you might want to think about where they're coming from, the quality of the medicine, the quality of what's in it. And if they're not providing COAs, if they're not able to back up where their mushrooms are come from, whether they're grown internationally or domestically, I think it's important to have that clarity as a consumer. And that's what I try and provide for people. Man, probably the most important message for everybody to hear there right at the end, Jacob. Thank you so much for sharing your story and all the information here on the Mushroom Hour. It's been an absolute honor to have you on the show. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you to everyone who supported me along the way. It's been an incredible journey, and I can't wait to see what this year has in store. <laughs>